Good morning. There is, I'm sure you know, a great danger in our familiarity with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, we can rattle it off from memory uh, without uh, really noticing what we're saying. It can become little more than a, a liturgical habit. Our Parliament still opens its sitting each day with a recitation of the Lord's Prayer, but most of the parliamentarians make sure they're out of the chamber at the time and the demeanour of the speaker often betrays the fact that he or she hasn't got the slightest idea what they're saying. But as we began to discover last week, the Lord's Prayer is rich in teaching about God and about ourselves and about the nature of prayer and is, in fact, one of the most profound prayers we are ever likely to pray. And, friends, that is nowhere more true than in the very first petition of the prayer. After praying, Our Father in heaven, we come to it, hallowed be your name. It's easy to skip over. Uh, it's easy to misunderstand, like the little boy who was learning the Lord's Prayer in Sunday school and began, Our Father in heaven, Harold be your name. <laughs> but as Martin Luther insisted, among the petitions of this prayer, none is greater than this one. It encompasses all the others. Hallowed be your name. How much notice have you taken of those four words? How much notice did you take of them just a moment ago when we prayed that prayer? For most of us, it's the third time this week we've been in chapel. Not for all of us, I'm sure. Um, and each time we've prayed the Lord's Prayer. How much notice did you take of those words? What would it look like if we really meant them? And what are we asking for precisely at this point? It's worth remembering, of course, that Jesus gave this prayer to his disciples in contrast to the ostentatious prayer habits of the Pharisees, by which they attempted to draw attention to themselves, you know, special prayer shawls, loud voices, strategic positioning, high-sounding language. When you pray, Jesus said, do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray in the synagogues and standing on the street corners so that they might be seen by men. The basic problem with their prayer is obvious, isn't it? They weren't really addressed to God at all. Everything they were doing was directed at those roundabout, those who would see them and hear them and be impressed by them, talking to those nearby under the guise of talking to God. But that immediately raises an even bigger problem, doesn't it? For they were trivialising prayer and trivialising the God to whom they were supposed to be praying. There was little sense of the presence of God as they prayed. He might as well not be there. He wasn't the intended audience anyway. But more than that, there was little sense of his majesty and glory and the honour due to God as they prayed. Little sense that the one they evoked is the one before whom all angels and elders bow down in worship, whose greatness silences the heavens, whose word commands the universe, whose compassion brings the most powerful forces on earth to their knees. None of that was obvious as they prayed. 
And in the starkest contrast to that pretense and trivialisation, Jesus gave his model. Therefore pray this way, Jesus said, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Now, in reaction to the formalism of past decades and centuries and the caricature of literature, film and television, many of us have sought authenticity in our church meetings through ever-increasing informality. But the issues in the contrast that Jesus makes here are, are much more important than that between formality and informality, between a pre-written liturgy and spontaneous prayers. You see, either side of those contrasts can be authentic and either side of those contrasts can be inauthentic too. Now the question is rather, do we pray as if God is present when we pray? Or is our prayer directed elsewhere? Do we pray with a recognition and acknowledgement of just what our God is like? Or is our prayer just another casual conversation with someone just like us? You see, far from being just an opportunity for formality or the expression of our liturgical habit, the entire Lord's Prayer from beginning to end is a challenge to us and the superficiality of our prayers. And as I said, that's nowhere more true than in this very first petition, hallowed be your name. Now, to understand the first petition of the Lord's Prayer, we need to remember how important the idea of a name, and particular God's name, is in the Bible. You remember the third of the great commandments that Moses gave his people from Mount Sinai in Exodus 20? You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Of course, uh, in later Judaism, that was taken with a kind of literalism that seemed strange to us. When the Old Testament scrolls were being hand-copied, a special pen was used for the Tetragrammaton, the four Hebrew letters of the covenant name of God. They never pronounced that name. The word Lord, Adonai, was substituted instead. So careful did one have to be that they did not inadvertently take the Lord's name in vain that they encircled the use of that name with rules and regulations and laws, even the very writing of it in the holy texts. But the point behind the commandment was that God himself is to be honoured. God himself is to be treated as his character and perfections demand. God is never to be trivialised or treated as just like us. God's name is not to be invoked playfully, foolishly, or simply as an intensifier of language. There is such a thing as blasphemy, and it is a line we must not cross. God's name is too holy for that. God's name is not to be trifled with. Because the name of God is a way of talking about the person of God, the being of God. To call upon the name of the Lord, as humankind began to do in Genesis 4 during the time of Enosh, was to call upon God. That's what Abram was doing when he called upon the name of the Lord in Genesis 12 and Genesis 13, calling upon God, addressing the one holy, pure and majestic creator, sustainer and redeemer of humankind. 
the great encounter of Moses with God at the bush which did not burn in Exodus 3, centred on the name of God. If I come to the people of Israel, Moses complained, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Knowing God's name was critical, a critical element of knowing God, being able to address him, being able to relate to him. But it was also a critical means of understanding all that God has been and is doing. I am who I am, or I will be whom I will be, or I will be known by what I do. To know God's name is to know God. God himself delights to make his name known, to display his character through all that he is doing. When after the tragic incident of the golden calf, Moses pleaded with God to show him his glory, God told him that he would make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And when it happens a chapter later, we're told the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and all the rest. Who God is and what God does is all tied up with his name. So how you treat the name of God is how you treat God. God is inseparable from his name. And so while the Jews, the later Jews, were perhaps a little bit too literal in the way they recorded the name with special writing implements and refused to pronounce the name and substituted the word Lord instead, there was a basic instinct that was right, wasn't there? God's name is not like any other name. It is set apart and holy. That's what hallowed means, after all. It's an enormous privilege to be given God's name. We must be very careful to treat God's name and so to treat God as his character and perfections demand, to use the Puritan phrase. I sometimes think that uh, we've fallen into a bit of a trap in that way, in which we so uh, readily speak of Yahweh in the Old Testament. That's uh, certainly a pretty good guess at how the covenant name of God was pronounced. Yet, is there nothing at all to learn from the Jewish reluctance to utter God's covenant name with such cavalier freedom? I can't help but feel a little uncomfortable when we so easily drop the word Yahweh into our sermons. And after all, as we heard last week, when we move into the New Testament, it's not the name that Jesus gave to his disciples. The Lord's Prayer does not begin Yahweh in heaven. Remember Packer's words? Father is the Christian name for God. But put that aside for a moment. The more important issue is how we treat the God whose name this is. Remembering that name and person are inseparable. Do you remember that this association of name and work has already been used in Matthew's Gospel, long before the Sermon on the Mount? Do you remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Joseph to steady him as he contemplated what he would do about Mary's pregnancy? And he said, you shall call his name Jesus, for 
he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, the one who saves, the one who leads his people into their inheritance, much as Joshua led the people into the promised land after the Exodus. Much later, and in another gospel, Jesus summed up his ministry in these words, addressing God, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You see, he hadn't run around Galilee and Judea telling people how to pronounce the Tetragrammaton. That's not the point. He'd shown them the heart of God. He'd shown them what God is like. And in perfectly manifesting God's character and in perfectly doing God's will, he had manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. You see, the name of God points us to the person of God and how you treat the name of God is how you treat the person of God. That is why the commandment says, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. That is why we're encouraged to pray, hallowed be your name. God is his name. That's the first thing. But there are two other things we should notice about this petition to hallow God's name. The next is rather straightforward, actually, but very easily missed. It is a petition. It is something we are asking God to do. The one who hallows God's name is God himself. We're asking God to do it. The petition is not, help us to hallow your name, but our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It expresses a desire to see God's name treated as it ought to be, to see God treated as he ought to be, and it acknowledges that it is God himself who ensures that this happens. In the end, it is only God who can ensure that this happens. Of course, if God hallows his name, then that has very sharp and significant consequences for how we speak of him and use his name and and relate ourselves to him. Long treatises have been written about how we might do this, how we might sanctify and hallow God's name. One of the most wonderful of them is by the Puritan Thomas Watson. His great treatise on the Lord's Prayer had a detailed reflection on what it means for creatures to hallow and sanctify God's name. He had 16 points, a 16-point sermon. Um, The Puritans loved big-numbered sermons. I actually remember going to a talk one day and hearing somebody speak about the Puritans, and he began his talk with, I have 19 points. (laughs) Problem was, when he got to 16, he says, I have four sub-points. It just went on like that. But that was the Puritans. But Thomas Watson, in his sermon with his 16 points, would say, we hallow and sanctify God's name when we profess his name when we have a high appreciation and esteem of him, when we trust his name, when we make mention of it with the highest reverence, when we love his name, and the list goes on. As I said, 16 points. And there's a wonderful heartwarming material in that sermon of Watson's. I commend it to you. But the first and prior point is to be made that God is the one who hallows his name and we're asking him to do it. Do you remember how, uh, throughout the Old Testament, God declares that he will act for the sake of his name, for the sake of my name? 
He will often speak of acting for the sake of Abraham, my servant, or for the sake of my people Israel, and sometimes he'll combine the two and speak of how he intends to defend the city for my own sake and for the sake of my servant David. But think of the most famous of the Psalms, Psalm 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, so that he is honoured as he ought to be, so that his pure, holy, wise and perfect character is seen and acknowledged as it ought to be, so that his glory is displayed in the universe and before the hosts of heaven. And in both salvation and judgment, the unique greatness and glory of God's name is to be seen. Moses told Pharaoh, but for this purpose I have raised you up, says God, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. The judgment of God on Pharaoh and Egypt, tragic as it was, executed after every attempt to persuade them to turn back was refused, nonetheless served the hallowing of God's name. And on the other side of the scale, so does the rescuing of the Israelites and their settling in the land of promise. It's intriguing that when uh, Solomon eventually builds the great temple in Jerusalem, he must acknowledge that it's not a house for God in any simple sense. Who is able to build him a house, Solomon asks, since heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain him. But God says to him, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you've made before me, and I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. But even those great redemptive acts of God are on too small a scale for the glory of God's name. And through the prophet Malachi, God declares, from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. It is God who hallows his name. He sets it apart from all other names. He publishes it throughout the universe. Through his creation, yes. Through his servants, yes. But it is God who does it. And we pray, hallowed be your name. You see, this is not a call for legalism or formalism on the part of God's redeemed people. Yes, it most certainly carries with it a rebuke of the superficial and trivial way we can treat God in our approach to prayer. God is more pure and holy and glorious than that. We do need to be stirred to consider again the most important biblical category of reverence and fear sort of dropped off the agenda too often for us, hasn't it? But first and foremost, it is a prayer that God might do what he has intended to do from the beginning and that he would ensure that his name, his character, his being is emblazoned across the world in the most appropriate way. Well, secondly, though the petition assumes that God's name, that though the, we're praying that God might um, hallow his name, the petition assumes that God's name is currently not on it, not hallowed as it ought. There's a reason that this is a petition, not just a point of thanksgiving. We call on God to hallow his name because throughout the world, and tragically, scandalously, in many places, even in the churches, God's name is not hallowed. 
God is simply not treated as his character and perfections demand. Does it distress you how the living God is dismissed, ridiculed or treated with contempt by those around us? Is there the slightest flare of indignation in your heart as you hear people laugh at the idea of God, refuse the suggestion he has any claim on their lives and so a right to direct the way they live in the world he's given them, insist that his words need to be corrected or overtaken by our words. When you hear some church leaders redraw a picture of God in the most insipid pastels as an anemic, indulgent, semi-retired grandfather who accepts everyone no matter what they believe, no matter how they live, no matter what their attitude to Jesus, his word, his cross, whatever that continues to be. There can be little doubt that very publicly and on a frightening scale, the name of God is despised rather than honoured in our culture and redesigned in many of our churches. And aside from the folly, tragedy and danger of that for all who are concerned, does it distress you? Does it make you want to pray? Our Father in heaven, you who hold all things in the hollow of your hand and by whom every breath and heartbeat is given, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. I remember sitting at the back of the Moore College Chapel one day uh, next to Peter O'Brien. It was many years ago. Um, A guest speaker was addressing the college and He'd made a number of jokes that were intended to warm us up and help us relate to him. I can't do that sort of thing. Um, (laughs) Except like that. Um, (laughs) But which, when you thought about it, actually treated God lightly. For the sake of a laugh, trivialised the being and character of God. Of course, he didn't mean to do so, and the scriptures make clear that God can laugh too. Uh, It'd be wonderful at some time to make a study of God's sense of humour. But on that day, I noticed that Peter was shifting a little in his seat beside me and was clearly uncomfortable. Afterwards, he said to me, the one he was talking about so lightly and irreverently is the one before whom one day I must give account of every idle word. Now, if you know Peter, you know he's not some kind of sour-faced puritanical sort. Uh, He enjoys a good laugh and a good joke, but it, it distressed him that the pure and holy, glorious and powerful God of all the universe, his heavenly Father, could be spoken about so frivolously. And sometimes we're guilty of that, aren't we? But, of course, it's much worse all around us at this moment in human history, isn't it? If you often thought, listening to some popular commentator or one of the dismissive new atheists, how do you dare speak about the living God like that? How do you dare describe the God who gave himself for us in the person of Jesus? How do you dare describe him as a monster? How dare you set yourself up, whoever you are, call yourself the Archbishop of Canterbury even, as if you know better than God? And you need somehow to update the word he's given us because things have moved on since then and poor God just hasn't caught up. How dare you tamper with the gospel he's given us to proclaim? Drop the words lost and repentance from the Christian vocabulary 
and suggest that Jesus Christ is just one of many pathways to God. Friends, we pray, hallowed be your name, not because there's any deficiency in God. It's not as if God needs to make up for something that's lacking in him. He's perfect and sufficient. He's always perfect and sufficient. No, as one Christian theologian put it, God cannot be hallowed by any addition to the holiness of his nature, but merely by the declaration of that holiness which always belongs to him. This petition expresses our heart's desire that all the world might see God as he really is, and always is. And we shouldn't forget, as dear old Martin Luther would not let us forget, we are all blasphemers too. We need our Father in heaven to impress on us too the utter perfection of his holiness and the scale of his majesty and power and glory, that his name might be hallowed not just in the world, but in our hearts as well. One final observation. It's important not to gloss over the fact that this is the very first of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer. It sets the tone for all the rest. It gives an important perspective on all prayer. It is, after all, the model for prayer that Jesus gives us. And that is, as one man puts it, Prayer is not, first and foremost, an exercise in vindicating our cause, meeting our needs, fulfilling our desires. Though, of course, it will be all those things in due course. First and foremost, though, it is about seeking his glory, the fulfilment of his purposes and the holiness of his name. The wonderful privilege of prayer is that God invites people like us to participate in what he's doing in the world, to play a vital, conscious, creative part in what he's doing by addressing him in prayer. And what a privilege it is to pray to the God of all the universe and plead that his name might be hallowed. So why don't we do that? Our Father, you are great and holy beyond words. Your purity, your glory, your majesty, your righteousness and justice are beyond anything that we have seen in our experience on earth. You are beyond them all, greater than them all. And we too often treat you flippantly and trivially. Father, we ask your forgiveness for that. And in our world, so many things are said which are the very opposite of hallowing your name. And we ask that you might overturn those things, that you might push back the darkness unravel the foolish arguments, no matter how sophisticated they might look, of those who oppose you. And let your name be hallowed once again in all the world. Give us yet once more an anticipation of that great day when every knee will bow 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.